brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, I'm excited to be joined by both Jane Pillinger and Alice Allen. Jane Pillinger is currently a visiting senior research fellow with the Open University in the UK. And she is a global expert on gender equality and gender-based violence at work. She has given policy advice to social partners, companies, governments, European and international organisations. And she is the author of several books and numerous articles on the topic. Jane is a former specialist advisor to the House of Commons Select Committee on Employment. And she has written a joint handbook for UN Women and the ILO on ending violence and harassment against women at work. She works tirelessly with companies and trade unions on implementation of policies on the impact of domestic violence at work. And she is a regular expert with us here at Business Fights Poverty. Meanwhile, Alice Allen is the author of Business Fights Poverty's recent toolkit, exploring how businesses should address gender-based violence during a time of COVID-19. She is one of our challenge directors specialising in the gender agenda. She is a former head of advocacy and policy at Care International UK. And before Care, Alice spent nearly 20 years working inside government as a human rights advisor at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and as a researcher in the UK Parliament. She has also spent time with Amnesty International UK and Safer World, where she helped push for the arms trade treaty, as well as being a journalist in both Colombia and Mexico. Alice, Jane, welcome. Thanks, Katie. Great to be with you. Hi, Katie, and it's really great to be part of this podcast. Oh, it's good to have you both. So perhaps I could just turn to Alice, you first. COVID-19 is not just a viral health crisis, but we have seen headlines around the world concerning the impacts on lives within lockdown due to gender violence. For those listening, could you perhaps explain a little more about why this is happening and the scale of the impact? Sure. Thanks, Katie. Well, as I think everyone is, is aware, sadly, COVID is, is certainly exacerbating many existing inequalities. There are some depressing statistics about global poverty being set back 20 years, gender equality as a whole being set back by 50 years. And already prior to, to, to the pandemic, uh, one in three women will experience some form of gender-based violence in their lifetime. But the pandemic has certainly seen this uh, levels, these levels of violence increase dramatically. The UNFPA produced a, a piece of research not too long ago, estimated around 20% increases in GBV in all 193 member states, so all around the world during the lockdown uh, periods. That, that equates to around 15 million, um, 1.5 million cases for every three months of lockdown. Um, and indeed, these sorts of statistics have been already seen. So 20 to 30% increase in, in cases in France and Spain. And indeed, the WHO have seen some 60% increases in calls to helplines in, in some parts of the world. So, so why, why is this happening? Why does this tend to happen during um, humanitarian or, or, or natural disasters in, you know, in the past as well? I think, number one, obviously, it's important to say that the social isolation linked to this emergency has really, you know, really leaves many people trapped with their abusers inside the home. 
And that's what's quite unique about this particular situation. Economic stress uh, caused by the pandemic and the, and the changing household dynamics creates tensions. Um, and of course, the lack of institutional response. So police and justice systems not working at full capacity because people are ill, because they're being directed towards other things. Health services not at full capacity. So sort of an ability for impunity to occur. And it's, I think, important to say as well, all types of violence are likely to increase during this time, whether that's child marriage in contact, in, in fragile context. But the two types that are particularly affecting business and, and I think require adapted responses and the sorts of things we're going to talk more about are particularly the issue of domestic violence and online abuse. Jane, turning to you, back in the summer of 2019, it seems a long time ago, there were some really positive strides taken in terms of businesses actively engaging with the topic of gender-based violence. Could you explain the ILO C.190 and its significance to us? Yes, this is the International Labour Organisation Convention, Convention number 190 on eliminating violence and harassment in the world of work. And it's got an accompanying resolution, uh, recommendation, that's recommendation 206, It was agreed by the tripartite partners, that's the employers, the workers and the governments last June. It's a global treaty and it's a hugely significant development in the world of work. It recognises really for the first time the importance of addressing gender-based violence in the world of work, including domestic violence, and that domestic violence also is a significant form of workplace violence and harassment. This is groundbreaking. It also notes that workplace violence and harassment, including domestic violence, can take place in the private area of the home as well as the public area of work. And this is really important in the context of COVID-19 because we've seen so many women in the lockdown now working remotely from home. And we do know that when somebody is in lockdown expected to work from home and carry out work tasks remotely, it gives users opportunities to carry out further abuse, controlling work tasks, and it raises an important question about the duty of care of employers to their employees. And I mention it because the the convention puts responsibilities on governments and in turn duties on employers to mitigate the effects of all forms of violence and harassment, including domestic violence in the world of work. And it includes, and I think this is where it's really helpful, in arguing that Violence and harassment, gender-based violence and domestic violence are occupational safety and health issues that need to be addressed through risk assessments that can look at prevention through workplace policies, information and support. And I think this is of massive importance because now governments are preparing their ratification processes. So what we'll see in the future, we hope, is that more and more governments will introduce laws putting responsibilities on employers to engage in collective bargaining, joint policies in the workplace, and to look at this in a comprehensive, gender-based, gender-responsive way, and to include also this this issue of domestic violence and how it impacts on, on, on employment. So, and I just want to add this issue, actually, about this duty of care, because obviously employers have duty of care towards their employees of their safety and health. And if we see violence and harassment as an occupational safety and health issue, we need to recognise this duty of care when work is taking place in the the home. So when we look at how employers can adapt their policies 
to give support and safety for their employees working remotely, it raises some really interesting questions. And there's a very important ruling in Australia just last week, this is mid-June, and the Australian High Court in New South Wales ruled that actually an employer does have a duty of care to prevent domestic violence when somebody is working remotely from home. And it sets a potentially important precedent, certainly in Australia, but in, in other countries across the world, to recognise this duty of care when, when the work and the home are the same place. And I think this is, is, is why the convention has become so important. And Alice, you might want to add something about this, but there was a massive campaign for this convention, and there were many employers in large companies in particular that supported the convention, recognising that actually this is a key issue for retention of staff, for ensuring quality of employment and so on. And that you know, more and more companies are now looking at the effects of domestic violence. They recognise the economic impacts, they recognise the issues around retention, and they recognise that it's a, it's a key aspect of, of decent work. No, I think that's fantastic, Jane. The only thing I would add that I think was particularly, again, so important about the, the treaty at the time I was, I was working with Care International on the campaign for it, along with many, many trade unions and others around the world, but was that, of course, this is a, a treaty that applies to all workers. And, and I think that's, that's really important. It was a difficult part of the negotiation, um, but it is, it is so important because, of course, informal workers experience violence as well as people working in the headquarters. And I think that really comprehensive nature of, of the treaty is so important because it, to have the, an impact it needs to be, but also because it does mean that so many different actors across the world of work need to be considering how to think about implementing it. Yeah, and maybe to add there, because actually it is, you know, what, what you're saying, it's, it's so crucial. I think the fact that it's a very comprehensive, very integrated approach, and I'm really pleased to see in, certainly in the, in, in the convention, but, but importantly in the recommendation, the issue about holding perpetrators accountable. And I think this is a really key issue. More and more companies are grappling with the issue about how do we address perpetrators who our employees, for example, who have perpetrated domestic violence against their, their partners? How do we address perpetrators who have committed sexual harassment on a serial basis? Because in a way, okay, we want effective disciplinary procedures and we want effective sanctions, but we also want to stop the perpetration of abuse. So what do we do? How can we engage men and boys in that? How can we look at this in relation to prevention in the long term. Thank you both and, and really important information and I will put a link into the words that sit alongside this podcast to that ILO convention. Alice, Jane, you two are perhaps the world's leading thinkers of ways businesses should be thinking about gender. I mean what has led you to this point? Oh thanks Katie. Well that's a very generous <laughs> introduction for me. But very, very true for Jane, I think. I think for me, two things. I, I've been very lucky in my career to have spent a lot of time working with different NGOs, um, with governments and others, you know, to understand social injustice and, and poverty globally. And I've had the privilege to many incredible women <laughs> who really, I do believe, are the backbone of the global economy. 
whether that's domestic workers in Latin America, whether that's garment workers in Asia, whether that's food producers in Africa. And it's, it's absolutely clear to me that whilst women are the backbone of the global economy, they have generally the most dangerous jobs, the most exploitative jobs, and they earn significantly less than men. The WEF statistic that it'll be at least 202 years before we close the economic gender gap is just something I find incredibly difficult to live with. So gender for me is, is, is really important and particularly economic empowerment of women, so gender in, in, in the workplace. And the other thing that made me particularly interested in, in what this means to companies and, and to business Two things, really. I had the chance once to work on a, a really interesting piece of work whilst I was at Care International, along with Barclays Bank. It was called the Banking on Change Programme. And I saw there, it was a programme that was about trying to link, really, Barclays Bank with informal women's savings groups across Africa. And I was really struck by how <laughs> once a business understood that there was the potential to invest and to work with these women and that the women also were benefiting from a group bank account, something that they weren't previously able to have, the ability to scale that and take that further was really, really significant. So I've always been interested, you know, business has immense power globally. Often I would, you know, in my heart believe too much really. But I think when we can harness and work with business for positive outcomes, that's a really powerful thing. And I think particularly on gender, business have got this kind of quite unique opportunity to work at the individual employee level. So the culture, the leadership, the the training that happens within an organization, they can work at an organizational level. So as Jane has been working really hard on, you know, we've seen organizationally some companies look at particularly things like gender-based violence, and often go further than than national governments. So whether it's about implementing things like 10 days paid safe leave for survivors of domestic violence, you know, they can set a standard that will hopefully bring others with them at an organisational level. And then, of course, they can affect society more broadly through their brand and through their lobbying. So we've seen even on GBV, the work of Avon, we've seen P&G and Unilever using their detergent campaigns in in India and Asia to really shift gender norms about who it is, whether it's men or women that should be doing the washing. So, you know, I think there's a lot of scope for business to tackle the gender agenda. And I think it's absolutely vital they do so as soon as possible. Yeah, uh, it's interesting question, actually, you know, what led you to this point? Because I've worked on gender equality all of my professional working life and mostly around gender equality in the workplace. And I suppose I came into the issue of gender-based violence through the lens of sexual harassment at work, along with other workplace inequalities. And it was really after, I suppose, several years of looking at this issue of sexual harassment at work and gender-based violence at work and really saw a gap. And I think there was an emerging at the time, this is going back a a decade, there was emerging policy responses coming from Canada and Australia in particular. And it seemed that this was an area that really needed some work doing on it, to be looking at the linkage between domestic violence and work in particular. And it really, over, over time, we moved from looking at just sexual harassment to gender-based violence and all forms of gender-based violence. So that opened the frame to enable us to look at that with the International Labour Organization, work I've done with UN women, with social partners across the world, with governments on the issue. And I have to say the union, trade union movement has, uh, has really 
you know, kind of driven this issue as well. I was involved in a study with the European Trade Union Confederation back in uh, 2014 called Safe at Home, Safe at Work, where we looked at what was happening in terms of collective agreements and workplace policies and so on. So I think there's been many, many companies in the last 10 years, really, who have begun to think about, you know, what's the bottom line for them in terms of retaining women, about promoting gender equality in their business strategies and recognizing that actually domestic violence is a key issue. So I, and and I suppose to add to that, you know, we looked at what was happening in Australia and Canada. I was really inspired by people like Luda McFerrin in in Australia and Barb Macquarie in Canada, who'd been working on this issue. And in fact, the three of us have been doing some work, uh, sharing our, our collective experience on this in drawing up some very practical briefings through the Deviant Work Network COVID-19 briefings, really to try and put out some information for companies, for businesses, for governments, for unions, NGOs, and so on about this issue. I mean, I couldn't get both of you guys onto a podcast and not ask for your advice. What would be your top advice to businesses who are concerned about the effects of gender-based violence within their sort of colleagues and their cohorts? Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to focus on the issues of domestic violence because to focus on all aspects of gender-based violence could take quite a long time. And Alice might have a few words to say about you know, the issues in global supply chains and so on. But I think you know, this is a, an unprecedented crisis that gives us a chance to have some new thinking about policy and practice and an opportunity to think beyond this immediate crisis. Social partners, governments, employers and others can start thinking about what we need for really long-term transformational change. So in a way, there's kind of longer-term issues and there's very practical, immediate issues. And maybe I'll just focus on a couple of practical issues um, to begin with. So first of all, we would want to be seeing all companies introducing workplace policies and procedures, including where possible, to conclude these collective agreements where they're required in the law, and that build effective procedures for prevention, reporting for resolution of of violence at work and importantly I think here in relation to domestic violence and opening up the possibilities for women in particular to speak about their experiences to build trust and we know the reasons why people don't report is because they don't trust that they will be listened to believed or indeed even there might be a response in terms of retaliatory action. So In these policies and procedures, we'd be arguing for domestic violence to be recognised and for practical workplace supports to be put in place, such as 10 days paid domestic violence leave, workplace readjustments, training for managers to give effective forms of support, financial support indeed also, if there's been financial abuse taking place. And it's crucial, we know, to keep survivors in their jobs and to keep survivors financially independent because actually one of the biggest predictors of remaining in an abusive relationship is being financially dependent on a partner. So this is why financial abuse becomes such an important part of our conversation about domestic abuse and coercive control. I think in relation to prevention programs, we need to be focusing much more on prevention. I mean, we're not saying take support away from survivors. We need to build that support even even further. But we need companies, we need the social partners building and championing prevention programs. And that might be including 
occupational safety and health risk assessments around prevention of, of domestic violence, identifying risks and mitigating those risks. And we need to empower our managers and our colleagues in the workplace to speak up about domestic violence. We need effective support and for companies to communicate and lead on the issue. We should all, all of us, women and men, be trained to become active bystanders in the workplace. In challenging, particularly challenging domestic violence, gender-based violence, discrimination, breaking down the isolation faced by survivors of sexual harassment or indeed of domestic violence. So I think taking a by, an active bystander approach, opening up those conversations. One of the issues is that many people don't report because of stigma, victim blaming. So being believed is really important. Having trusted procedures is, is absolutely crucial. And I think during the COVID-19 crisis, we've seen that it's actually been much harder for you know, an employee's work to be disrupted during a situation of confinement. There are tactics of, of control that are much easier like to implement, such as frequent interruptions of work, refusal to carry out childcare, surveillance, physical violence, and so on, that might prevent somebody from completing their work tasks. So in the context of what businesses can be doing is to ensure that they open up spaces for survivors to talk, particularly if there are only opportunities through online and telephone communications and finding safe spaces to talk. And I think it's really, really important that companies engage in public awareness campaigns, that they take a broader role in talking about the risks of domestic violence, of other forms of gender-based violence during the pandemic, and how a survivor, for example, can contact a helpline or seek emergency help. You know, we want to see businesses putting up resources and funding to help the domestic violence sector respond. But we also need to make sure that we change the narrative around our discussions about domestic violence, because in many senses, and I think the, the pandemic has, has revealed this, in many senses, you know, the safety and security of women in their own homes becomes all the more crucial. We've had a kind of policy, I suppose it's out of urgency and protection of women, but we've had a, a kind of policy direction that is really geared to women leaving uh, domestic violence situations and going into so-called safe accommodation, when actually the reality is that many women go directly into homelessness and into other forms of traumatised situations. What we need to do is to make sure that women are safe. They're safe in their own homes if they can stay in their own homes, but that they're in safe long-term accommodation and given the opportunities to continue working, to have the opportunity for an independent income to enable them to live independently. So I think there's loads we can do. We can give guidance to managers, to colleagues. We can look at resources. We can look at influencing policy agendas. And I'll stop there. I'd have a long, long list. And we have got resources that we can refer you to from UN Women. There's various toolkits and further resources that have been drawn up by some companies that people can, can look at for more detailed information. The way I sort of thought about this, I think, almost summarises quite a lot of what, what Jane was saying. So in my head, I think in terms of pieces of advice, I think businesses need to think why they need to do this. And for me, there's three reasons. Number one, it's ethical. It's about work, your worker well-being. 
Number two, there are there are really quite prominent now business cases and why on why you need to do this from productivity and a performance point of view. There's a really good IFC Sortuna study that found staff were losing the equivalent of 11 work days a year to GBV and in their fish plantation in Papua New Guinea. Uber had a 56% drop in, in use after there were allegations of sexual harassment at their kind of HQ level. So these are reputational productivity issues for businesses. And then, of course, there are the legal reasons, so including the forthcoming ILO um, convention. So I think it's important that businesses do think, why does this stuff matter to us beyond, and of course, the individual um, ethical reasons should be number one, but there are also clear business and legal reasons why this needs to be looked at. And then I think for me, an, an interesting way of thinking about how business can respond to some of these issues is that there are, and we talk about this in this in the toolkit that, that Business Fights Poverty helped to produce on this particular issue. We talk about, there are two ways. Number one, think about the internal actions you can take to protect employees. So lots of the great stuff that Jane was just explaining in terms of manager training, in terms of hotlines, in terms of employee advocates, um, in terms of thinking about safe housing, uh, having clear policies for safe leave. And then think about the sort of wider change that you can have through your business. So how can your core business affect change? Are you a mobile company that's looking at how it can support or expand mobile or web-based services and apps for survivors of domestic violence? Are you a health provider? Are you a hospitality sector that should be could be thinking about potentially sort of medium-term safe housing for, for survivors? And then think about your marketing, your potential for your marketing and your brand to be involved in some of the public awareness campaigns that are out there at the moment that need to continually be there. And then your philanthropy, how can you potentially be supporting issues um, around perpetrator rehabilitation, around lots of the longer term things that, that, that we need support with? And finally, I think one thing is that, you know, I think businesses that do and are looking at these issues are future proofing themselves, basically, both in terms of their protecting their, their workforces, but also I think things that they start to implement now, particularly in terms of the sort of online response to. GBV in the workplace is only going to be a, an investment for the longer term because this is the way, you know, the workplace is changing to be a more online space. So if you can have policies and procedures in place now that respond to GBV, you will be in the right place now and in future. Just to add, it's really important that businesses think about, you know, at a, at a kind of strategic level, having a, you know, very comprehensive corporate strategy to shift company culture because Part of the problem has been company cultures that don't recognise, don't understand often the issue of of gender-based violence. And what we'd like to see is a company culture shifting so that the workplace becomes a, a place of trust, of support, of protection, you know, where it fosters a culture of zero tolerance to all forms of violence and harassment. And that this is promoted through I suppose, a kind of whole of organisation of approach to gender equality and to women's leadership, because the issue is that in the vast majority of cases, it is women who experience gender-based violence. And unless we tie our corporate strategies, our company strategies and policies and procedures into gender equality and women's empowerment and women's leadership, then really we're going to be kind of coming to a dead end. So I think if we can present the solution um, 
for companies and for businesses that it's a win-win to promote women's leadership, to promote gender equality in the workplace, and that part of this narrative is that we need to end a culture of gender-based violence and have a zero-tolerance approach towards it and link that into the importance of gender equality strategies. And Jane, I mean, is is gender-based violence something that can really be stopped? Of course it can, and it should be indeed. I mean, it's one of the biggest human rights violations of our time. But we can't stop it overnight. It's a long-term programme of transformational change that starts with changing social norms, about how we can build more gender-equal social roles for girls and boys, for women and men. And I think it, it requires leadership from governments, from the economy, the economic sector, from employers, unions, educators, the media. In fact, everybody has a role to play in this. So it can be and it should be stopped. And maybe just to add here that, you know, laws are really important because they set standards, um, particularly if they're proactive, but they're not enough. We need to be driving an end to gender inequalities and sexism, including institutional sexism. And this requires multifaceted interventions. If governments across the the world ratify ILO ILO Convention 190, this will be a crucial step forward because it recognises the linkage between unequal social norms and gender-based violence. And there might be other instruments as well that are, are also relevant, such as the UN Convention on Ending Discrimination Against Women. In Europe, we have a fantastic framework of the Istanbul Convention. I always say to people in Europe, if we can properly and fully implement the Istanbul Convention, we'll be a long way down the road to preventing gender-based violence. And I think, you know, the COVID-19 crisis and pandemic has taught us that we need new mechanisms to end violence against women that include strengthened victim support, but that go beyond this so that we address the root causes. And finally, we need to end this culture of stigma, shame, victim blaming if we really want women and other discriminated groups to speak out about gender-based violence and that they can do so without recrimination, discrimination or retaliation. So there's lots of lots to do and lots of possibilities. Just to add, I mean, absolutely, I think the answer to that question, can it be stopped, is yes. And it can certainly be significantly reduced. And it's it's all our responsibilities to try and make that happen. And absolutely to the holistic responses and the need for greater investment from, from all sectors to try and achieve that. And for me, a bit, bit back to what Jane was saying about sort of cultures of equality and leadership in the workplace, gender-based violence really is a cause and consequence of, of gender inequality. And for me, there are two things in my mind that I think would would really significantly move things forward from a sort of prevention um, level. And I think first among those is seriously looking at what it means to be a man and reshaping notions of masculinity. So ending these kind of toxic masculinity contests in workplaces. They're a disaster for men's health and for women as well. There's some great work being done by organisations and companies to really start looking at busting um, myths of what it is to be a man in in 2020. And then the other thing for me is is the caring responsibilities. So, you know, if we're really to try and achieve greater gender equality globally, we have to address the disproportionate amount of of caring work that, that women do. And I think it's one of the most entrenched barriers, frankly, to achieving greater gender equality. 
Um, there have been some quite interesting, there's some interesting dynamics unfolding in, the, in relation to that during the, the pandemic. So um, whilst women are predominantly doing still the most uh, caring of children and vulnerable people whilst also trying to work, there are also figures that are looking quite positive in terms of men stepping up and taking more of a role there. And that's something like a lot of things during this crisis that we really want to make sure we, we hold on to um, when, when things become or are the new normal. My final question to you today, if someone listening to this podcast is being affected or either directly or they think they know someone who is being affected by gender-based violence, what should they do? Well, I would urge anyone listening to this podcast who's affected by gender-based violence or domestic violence to find somebody they trust to talk to. It could be a friend, a colleague, a trusted manager, a union representative, somebody in an NGO, or it could be a specialist domestic violence support organisation. They may be able to help you with your own safety planning, um, but they might also be able to give you legal advice about how to get a protection or a barring order, how, if your work is being affected in the workplace, how you can continue to work safely, access financial support if you need it, or other workplace supports. And I think, you know, if we look at this in relation to, for example, sexual harassment, you know, that sexual harassment that has been perpetrated by a colleague or by a, a third party, if you're working in a, a service that is customer facing, um, it's important to find somebody to talk to, find out if your company has a workplace policy on violence and harassment. And this might be the case also for somebody experiencing domestic violence, if there's workplace policy, find out about how you can make a complaint, and how you can seek support. But it's important to talk to somebody to get help, to get advice, and to find a way of securing your own safety. And if it's possible, to talk to a domestic violence organisation and get some, some legal and practical support, I'd really recommend that. And most countries, there will be an organisation that can be contacted either at the national or the local level in some countries, where there are no domestic violence support organisations, for example, in the kind of NGO sector, there may be support that can be gained from a nurse or a health professional, which is often the case in, in developing countries where there are no kind of support organisations on the ground. Or indeed, it might be that the government provides a support service. So find out if there are support services locally, talk to your colleagues, and it might be in the workplace. Your manager has received training or knows about a workplace policy and can give you some support as well. Just to add to that very, really briefly and to try and think of a, a sort of positive, if there can be, sort of way to conclude, I think one of the things I've found interesting about how people have been responding to the increase in GBV during the pandemic is in some ways how technology has been developing to respond to the, the challenges. So obviously one of the big challenges is that people are trapped in the home and as Jane was explaining earlier, um, the ability for more control and coercive control over people in the home is there. But there have been some interesting developments, things like online chat tools to help survivors put privacy settings onto their mobile phones so that it is harder for an abuser to track and trace what they've been doing on their phones. Um, ditto buttons on helpline websites. So if you're looking at a helpline website or you've advised a friend to look at a helpline website and they're looking at it in home and their abuser might be 
coming into the room, standing behind them, they're now putting these buttons on helpline websites, which you can quickly press and then will then flood your search history with unrelated sites so that the abuser cannot therefore see what you've been looking up or, or, or searching online. And I think for me, these are the sorts of tools that we definitely want to see see long term and do offer some um, help in overcoming this the, the real challenge of, of, of fear and control of, of trying to get help in the first place. Well, Jane Pillinger, Alice Allen, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 